I want to speak this morning on the resurrection. I thought I would do that this being Easter, but I want to start. (laughs) You'll kill me if I didn't. But you understand, the resurrection does not start with Jesus. You know, it starts in the Old Testament. It climaxes in Jesus. And then it is carried out in our day. But it goes all the way back to the Old Testament. And so with your permission, or even without it, I'm going to start in Exodus. Can I do that? I want to try to wrap up this thing that we've talked about, this journey when God calls, this journey called salvation. And when you get to the end of the book of Exodus, you realize you are smack dab in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark. Exodus leaves you where Matthew and Mark picks you up and takes you forward. We have talked about how God sees us some time ago and he calls our name. And when he does, he sets into motion the things that will lead to our salvation. We are saved not because we want to be. We are saved because God wants us to be. And he puts forth a call. And when we respond to that call, he puts us through a process that is our salvation. I know we talk about being saved as though it's always something that happened in the past. And it did happen in the past. But salvation is something that is happening. If you've gotten nothing else, I hope you've gotten that. Salvation is not something that happens in a moment that we keep tabs of and then turn in to some kind of a report. It's a process that God is putting us through. So some of you are early in that process. Maybe you're hearing for the first time that God wants to do something significant in your life, or maybe you're feeling like you're trapped in a predicament, and for you, the process of salvation has already begun. A moment of surrender is necessary. But for others of you who've been a quote-unquote Christian for a long time, you've discovered that God is starting to disentangle you from things that have attached themselves to you over the years. At first, you liked them. Then you needed them. Now, you can't do without them. And they're starting to take the place of Almighty God Himself. And so my word to you is that part of your salvation is this separation between you and those things that keep attaching themselves to you. Some of you have gone through that moment of deliverance. The momentum has shifted. It's easier for you to do what is right than it is to do what is wrong. Now, granted, in a room this size with this many people, that's probably the minority. Most of us, when we get up in the morning, we have to think about what is the right thing to do, and then we try to do it, yes? But there are some here for whom that has changed. They wake up in the morning, and they do the first thing that comes to their mind, and it happens to be right. And then they do another thing, and it happens to be good. And they end up living like Jesus, really, without a lot of effort. The fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ in them that's really empowering them. It's a different place to be. And even if you're not there, I hope you will leave open the possibility that part of what it means to be saved is to come to that moment where the momentum tips. Okay, now it's gotten quiet. So you find yourself in a wilderness in this place where you can't get any traction, you can't move forward, you think you're a Christian, but if you are a Christian, why is all this stuff happening in my life? And see, this is what you have to know. That when you decided to follow Christ or you wanted to become a follower of God, that didn't protect you from all of this stuff that's happening. 
what we have to tell you is stuff is going to happen to you whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. It really, when it comes to that, there is no difference. Christians lose good people too. And Christians have really hard lives too and they have to do difficult things. The difference for the Christian is that they know that there's a purpose now. There's a direction. This is going somewhere. It's not a random event. It's not something I did wrong. There's an outcome in all of this. And so maybe you find yourself here in the wilderness and you can't get any traction. What you need to know is this is not proof that you aren't really saved. This is probably proof that you are. God is testing you and purifying you and he is making you a new person right now. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's really hard because again, our default is to say, if I am a new person, then I should have an entirely new life. Well, this is one of those seasons for you and I hope you know that God can be trusted. Some of you are sensing a call in your life right now and others of you are just sensing the presence of God that Emily talked about last week. When you get to the end of Exodus, you discover that the book never ends. This is what it looks like. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they would not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle in the sight of all the house of Israel during all of her travels. The end. This is when it occurs to you that the book of Exodus never ends. You're waiting for it, but it never happens. You want the details to be put back on the shelf so you can answer the questions and say, oh, now I know what happened to that person or this person. In fact, it's worse than that. When you started this book, God made promises that he still hasn't kept. What he said was he was taking you to a land of milk and honey. We'll call it promised land. Are you with me? But you get to the end and you realize you're not there, but the book is over. So you, you come to this place where you go, well, this must be one of those moments where even though this isn't the end, I can see it from here. My wife is a huge fan of Hallmark Channel. I, on the other hand, and some of you know what I mean. But on occasion, when I lose an argument or a bet, I will subject myself to the trauma of a Hallmark movie. It is the ultimate payback in our house. When you watch a Hallmark movie, it does not matter how many times you have sinned. We're even. <laughs> and so we have this thing where at the beginning of the movie, and I don't want to wreck this for you, but I got to warn you, if you've never watched one, watch one and you've seen them all. There is this moment at the beginning of the movie where the guy comes in, and if you're a gal, it's never the guy, it's always the really a cute guy. And never the ordinary guy like you and me. It's always the exceptionally handsome guy, the guy that makes you sick, that guy. <laughs> and if you're a guy, it's always the woman who's exceptionally beautiful. And when they walk into a room together, 
they'll meet for the first time and you look at it and you've already identified them and you know five minutes into the movie, him and her are going to hook up. That's it. <laughs> Only that's not it. There is two hours <laughs> of milking this plot. You know from the beginning that there will be some surprises, there will be some struggles, there will always be a fight, but at the end of it, the two are going to come back together again. So in one sense, even though the movie is not over, it's over. <laughs> Five minutes into it. Exodus is a lot that way. And no, I am not comparing Exodus to the Hallmark Channel. But you get to the end of the book and you realize that even though a lot of the details have not been resolved, the two most important characters have been identified. One of those is God himself and the other one is the people of God. And they like each other. And you come to the end of this book and you go, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen from this point forward. There will be a lot of surprises. There will probably be a fight. There will be a ton of struggle. But at the end of the day, I bet they hook up. Which leads to the next thing you notice at the end of Exodus. It isn't really about the promise at all. It's about the presence. He told us at the beginning of the book that he would lead us to the promised land, but we're still not there, and somehow everything feels okay, because in those last few verses that I just read to you, there is no mention of a promised land, there is mention of a cloud. In fact, if you compare those last few verses to the rest of Exodus, what you notice is he mentions the cloud as many times in these last few verses as he does the entire book. What cloud? Remember when they went through the Red Sea and they were getting ready to go and all of a sudden in chapter 13, 21, 22, it says, listen, wait for it. It says, and Yahweh went ahead of them. You can start to smell Easter here. Yahweh went ahead of them in the cloud. That was a game changer. Because when they got into the sea and the Egyptians were coming after them, watch it, chapter 14, 19 and 20, the cloud lifted up from in front of the people and it moved to behind the people and it separated the new people of God from the people that were chasing them. So it said from this day forward, it was dark where the Egyptians were, but it was light where the Israelites were. And the last phrase is, so they never were together. So this presence of God started to guide them and then it separated them once and for all from the life that was behind them. There was a day when they were in the wilderness and Aaron was preaching because Moses was too afraid 
And while Aaron was preaching, the people were grumbling under their breath. Some of you have done that. I've seen you. You don't like the way it's going. And there's days when I'm worse than Aaron. And he's fumbling for words and the people are upset and they don't want to be in, quote, church today. I was preaching in northern Michigan and I looked out halfway through the sermon and a teenager had a black t-shirt on that said, your lips are moving, but all I hear is blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But my modus operandi, as you know, is to plow through it. You know this. You wish I quit. uh, Dick Baris used to preach in this church some years ago, was in Fort Wayne preaching one time. He got 10 minutes into the sermon. He knew he was missing on every piston. He finally stepped out from the pulpit. He said, listen to me, people. This sermon ain't going anywhere. I know it's not going anywhere. You know it's not going anywhere. This sermon's over. Let's pray, for, let's pray the benediction. Church was over. Man, he has nerves of steel to do that. Most of us just put our head down and push all the way through it like I do. But this guy knew when he was bad. So Aaron's out in the wilderness, he's preaching, he's missing on every piston, everybody knows it. They're thinking, man, you need to give the benediction. And in chapter 16, verse 10, wait for the language. It says, and the people looked past him into the desert, and there was the cloud. Oh, I wish I'd had that on some days, huh? Put that thing up there and say, I know I'm boring, but look at that. That'll do it right there, right? You look at that and say, oh, man, you just got interesting, boy. Why? Because whenever the presence is there, people knew they were okay. You're in the wilderness. You don't know where you're going. You don't know where you've come from. You don't know how far you have to go. You don't know anything. Does God have a plan for your life? You have no idea. All you know is when you look to the wilderness, there's a cloud. And when you see it, you go, we're in. We're in. I don't know how long it's going to take, but we know the deck is stacked. If God has cards, we're going to win. You see it? It's a game changer. Exodus chapter 19 A cloud comes down and settles on top of the mountain, and it starts to lightning and thunder. I've been in Colorado with the yachts. We look out over the mountain ranges, and you know when the cloud comes down. It's a thunderstorm cloud. It comes down, and you can see it get really dark, and the lightning, and it's cracking. And I mean, when, when, when it says the mountains trembled, you're thinking, I'll bet they are over there. We're staying here. In the midst of this cloud, Moses hears a voice. This is a very rough translation, a very rough translation. From the cloud, he says, come on up here, boy, I want to talk to you. (laughs) Deep in Moses' heart, he's thinking, I ain't going. But he does go. Chapter 20, watch the language. It says, he goes up the mountain into the dark where God was. And the people watch him disappear out of sight. And their beloved leader is gone. But they also know that those are the best possible moments of their lives. And why do they know this? Because when the cloud is present, when the cloud is with you, God is with you. 
and you are safe. You don't know where you're going, but you're safe. It's okay. Which leads to the third thing I noticed about the end of this book. And this tips us right into Easter. Exodus is not really about a mountain where people gather like church on Sunday and hear a word from the Lord. Exodus is about a movement, people. The book is not just about God creating a people. The book ends with God taking his people on the move. So if you get to the end of Exodus and you want all of the details, you're in the wrong place because the details are still in front of you. If you want the presence of God in Exodus, you have to move. You don't sit and worship. You have to be on the move because it says when the cloud lifts, it moves. You better break camp and go. Or you'll have church without him here. You see it? Which leads us right into Easter. Sometimes on Easter, we get trapped about the history. We try to prove that Jesus was alive and that he really came back from the dead. That his body literally came out of the grave. I just say I'm beyond that at this point. Of course I believe that. If Jesus was God, and he was, anything is possible. Anything is possible. The heavens are open. Things can change like that. We are not the only players in the game. So we spend a lot of time trying to prove what to me seems obvious. And then the next thing we do is we flip it into the future and say, because Jesus rose from the dead, everybody in my life who died will also come back from the dead. And this is a marvelous hope. When you're in a funeral, this is what you need to hear. This, however, is not a funeral. We are somewhere in between the past and the future trying to figure out what is the meaning of Easter in this moment, on this day, April the 5th. Are you tracking? And it comes in these words. When the women get to the tomb, they see an angel sitting on a stone, and the angel says, don't be afraid. I know what you're looking for. You're looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then, go quickly and tell his disciples. And what are we to tell them? He is risen from the dead. Watch this. And is going ahead of you into Galilee. That's where you'll see him. So the women turn to run away, and they take a few steps, and Jesus is right in front of them. Scares the life out of them. So they fall right down at his feet, and they start grabbing hold of his ankles. And right in the middle of a worship service, one of them's just about ready to bust into Christ the Lord is risen today. 
the first thing Jesus says is, wait for it. Don't be afraid. Tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they'll see me. Let me see if I got this. You came looking for him here, but he's really out there. You came looking behind you. But if you want to see him, you got to look ahead of you. You came looking for him in religious Jerusalem. He is in secular Galilee. You'll love this. About two-thirds of the inhabitants are immigrants. They came from other countries 700 years before when Israel collapsed. So two out of three people are not blue bloods. He came looking for him in the temple, but he's actually in the marketplace. You came thinking he was dead, but he's actually alive. So you came to linger, but if you want to see him, you got to move. Are you hearing this? The power of the resurrection this morning is not simply that it happened. Of course it did or that it'll happen again. You wait. The power is that it is happening still. He is risen. That changes everything. This is not a religious dogma. This is a secular event. So even if you don't like the resurrection or agree with the resurrection, you got to deal with the resurrection because it means anything is possible. We're not here alone. The heavens are now open. God can descend and ascend at will. He not only hears prayers, he can answer them. He can still do things you can't explain because all of that changed on this day. You see, that's what I mean. It's a big, hairy deal. And he's going ahead of you. He is always ahead of you. I know y'all came to Easter thinking that somewhere in the service you would feel something or hear something that would make you go, there's Jesus. But I'm telling you, he is not here as much as he is out there. And if you want to see him, you got to go where he's going. And as you go, the really good news is he is always going ahead of you. So whatever it is you're about to run into, he is already there. And believe me, 
To be forewarned is to be forearmed. He knows fully well what is necessary in the next few weeks. And this is a really big deal for our church because I sat over here this morning about five and I started to pray for the people of our church. And what I realized is that in some of your lives, there have been some really big changes in the last year. Some of you have found yourself reacting to things that you could not control or you've had really big decisions to make. And if you're like me, you always make the decision kind of wondering, is that the right thing or not? What if I got it wrong? Is there information I don't have? It's about ready to break your mind, isn't it? Well, the beauty of this is that it really isn't about the decision at all because it really isn't the plan of God that you're most interested in is it? You're not worried, are you, that you'll get it right. What you have to worry about is the cloud. When the cloud is there, you'll have it right. As long as you are in the presence of the living God, by the time you make the decisions, the ones that could kill you have been stripped from the menu. You are already looked out for. You do not have to create your future. You don't have to have a big long plan and then step into it and hope you get it right in between. You have to look to the empty tomb and know that he's alive. And you have to know that he is always a few yards ahead of you. And then you just have to go and he will work it out. See, I worry about that sometimes. I lose things, I lose people, and I'm like you. I'm always figuring out, well, where in the plan of God is this? Man, I don't know. And I know you're thinking, dude, we pay you to know this stuff. <laughs> well, you're getting ripped off. <laughs> because what I know is I have lost people I did not want to lose too early in life. And so have you. And you've had those moments where everything broke loose for you and you thought to yourself, is this it? I got to figure this out. There is something I got to learn. Oh, God has a plan. God's going to teach me something. I just know he is. And when he does, I'm going to be all better as if it were the plan that was guiding you. I'm telling you, it is the risen one who is guiding you. That's what you got to know. You say, well, there is a plan, you just don't know it. With all due respect, what good is that? <laughs> what is the difference between a plan that I cannot know and no plan at all? People, I need some help here. I don't need a lesson in philosophy. I need some help. And the help comes when you realize I don't have to figure this out. There may or there may not be. It doesn't matter to me. I look to the desert and there is the cloud. And I know that he is going ahead of me into Galilee. That's a really good thing. Which leads to the last thing about the resurrection. It ends in Galilee. It doesn't end in church. It should. Can we just say it? There should be a grand worship service at the end of this, led by our band too, I think. 
it should go on like an hour and a half, then do a brief intermission, and then there should be a really long sermon. (laughs) I'll preach it. Because that way, even if heaven isn't eternal, it will seem like eternity. (laughs) That's how it should end. But how it ends is in Galilee. Isn't that weird? Secular, immigrant-filled, mostly lower income, farmers, day laborers, people who hate the government and can barely get along. That's where the resurrection ends, which, by the way, is where you come in. The gospel ends exactly the way Exodus does. It just sort of stops. Don Jewell said he had a student who was memorizing the gospel of Mark, and he went into a large church, and he recited the gospel of Mark, you know. And he got to the end of Mark, chapter 16, verse 8, and he had it all memorized. And he just said, And they fled in terror and amazement, and they never said anything to anyone, for they were afraid. And it, that, that's it. That's where the gospel ends. There is no happily ever after. So he said this line, and when he got to it, um, he looked out in the audience, was like, Go on, go on, go on. Well, there's no going on. It's over. So he started to fidget back and forth on his feet. He was not prepared for this. He knew the entire gospel, but he didn't know what to do here. So he's back and forth on his feet, and he's thinking. Finally, he just looked at the audience, and he went, Amen. (laughs) In the audience, burst into applause. Because they want an ending. Oh, that's what happened. They left in terror and amazement. Beautiful. But when you get to the end of the Gospels, as in Matthew, all power and authority is given to me. Go make disciples, and I'm with you always. See you later. (laughs) What is this? Then you realize that the Holy Spirit left it that way as an open door. No, no, listen. He really did. Because you realize that the risen one, Easter, is too big a moment It's the most pivotal moment in history. In fact, it is so pivotal, it cannot be confined to a day. Not even a day as big as this one. It can't be held into a little sermon. You can't picture it with a bunch of lilies. And you can't smell it with the smell. It's life. It's an entirely different future because of what Jesus has done. And it occurs to you that we are called into this life. And this life is always moving towards the secular world, the very people the resurrection was intended to hit. And it calls us into that. And it says to you, in effect, the end of the story that you keep waiting to see is not behind you, it's in front of you. And it's not in a sermon. It's in a dialogue. It's in a marketplace or a hospital or a funeral home where you will first feel the impact of this day. And when you are there and you remember what the angel said, he is going ahead of me into Galilee, you will know he is alive.
My fear is that you and me are like the disciples. The fear is not that they won't see him. Of course they'll see him. Of course they'll see him. The fear is that we won't recognize him. Like two guys walking on the road to Emmaus, we'll be looking right at him, having a conversation, and not realize that's him. Like Mary, we will turn and think it's the gardener. And maybe it was the gardener. Maybe he is the gardener. Or the waitress. Or the cashier. Or the lawn boy. Or the person you meet in the laundromat. And we'll miss them. This is a day when everyone is called into Galilee. But I tell you, Galilee cannot be transformed apart from the resurrection. Let me say this heart to heart to some of you guys who are over your head in social action. The goal of our mission is not to make sure everybody has a job and all incomes are equal. The goal and the mission of the church is to make sure that what the resurrection pictures is a living reality in our community. This is a picture of what life looks like at the end. If we forget this picture, we are just another social organization. Thomas Long says he was serving on a committee in Princeton some years back. It was a committee of advisory for chaplains. They would have chaplains all sit in a circle and tell them what they've done, and then they would ask questions, and that was it. On one particular day, a Methodist chaplain came in and gave the report, and when he was done, someone said to him, so can you tell me the moral, the, the moral life? Tell me the moral life of these students said the chaplain, well, sir, I think the moral life is quite strong. They're all in love with God, and they all have big, big, big plans for their life. Well, what are they doing, he said. Well, he said, some of them are involved in the public schools. They're in a mentoring program. And when he said it, a Jewish rabbi on the other side of the table started to smile. Didn't say anything. The student went on and said, and some of them, sir, uh, work in soup kitchens. Some of them just protested last week about apartheid in South Africa. Some of them work in the mission downtown. And the more he talked, the wider the rabbi was smiling. Finally, at the end of his discussion, the student was so upset with the rabbi who was now grinning, practically laughing. He looked across and said, Ed, have I just said something that's funny to you? No, 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 not at all, said the rabbi. I, I was listening very closely. I heard you say that the students have a strong moral life, and they do. And he said, I heard you say that they're very active in the affairs in their community, and we're glad for that. But as you were talking, I was thinking to myself that what those students really need is a vision of salvation. Everyone looked at the rabbi like you were looking at me. 
How could you be in all of those things and miss the message of salvation? You already know the answer. It's all too easy, said the rabbi. Unless they have a clear picture of what God is trying to do to the world, the soup kitchens will beat you down. Is he right or is he right? We have to remember that the resurrection is not our story. It is world history. It is the direction that the world is going. So every time we do what we do in Jesus' name, it is not to fill our seats or even to save individual souls, though we want them all. It is to transform the world into the image of him so that he, not us, might be firstborn among millions. And that happens one person at a time. But church, do not lose the vision that Easter is a living reality and it influences everything we do in Jesus' name. So this morning, I call you, whatever you're doing and wherever you work, into the movement that God is leading. I call you with assurance that wherever you go, He got there first. And I promise you, that he is going somewhere. And all you need to know is that he is with you, alive, and he is leading you. And as you follow him, together, Easter will be the end of the world. I can't think of a better ending. Can you? Can you? And so with all of that, I say... He is risen.